1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Wilfred Riley. He is the author of Taboo: Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. The book is published by Regnery. He'll join us in this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Deborah Greenwich. She is the worship pastor at Tigered Covenant Church, and we'll talk with her as we've talked with others about how she's navigating the new normal, staying connected with others, and staying close to Christ. So that will be in the 5 o'clock hour. Deborah Greenwich. <clears throat> Excuse me. First, looking at some of the day's news stories, President Trump on Sunday declared that the peak in the death rate in the coronavirus pandemic is likely to hit about two weeks from now. Uh, He said the federal government will be extending its social distancing guidelines through the 30th of April, as he attempted to brace uh, the nation for the possibility of 100 to 200,000 in the U.S. could die from the deadly virus. The modeling estimates that the peak in death rate is likely to hit in two weeks, he said, at the White House Rose Garden, I will say it again, the peak, the highest point of death rates, remember this, is likely to hit in two weeks. Therefore, we will be extending our guidelines to April 30th to slow the spread. The president, again, speaking from the White House, Rose Garden. In response to a question at the briefing, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, reiterated his estimate from earlier in the day that it remained possible that 100 to 200,000 people could die in the United States. What we're trying to do is not let that happen, he said, calling the extension of social distancing guidelines a wise and prudent decision. Over 2,300 people with the virus already have died in the U.S. The president, um, his White House coronavirus news briefing on Sunday was often contentious and involved testy standoffs with multiple reporters. Saying his earlier hope that the country could reopen by Easter was just an aspiration. Amid grim news, he tried to be optimistic, saying we can expect that by June 1st, we will be well on our way to recovery and that a lot of great things will be happening. We also learned today that the Oregon Health Authority uh, reported novel coronavirus deaths rolls by 3 to 16 in the state of Oregon, as confirmed. COVID-19 cases in the state climbed to 606. State health officials said a 91-year-old Yamhill County man, an 80-year-old Clackamas County man, and a 91-year-old Lynn County man were the latest patients to succumb to the illness. Each reportedly had underlying medical conditions. Again, the death toll in the state of Oregon up by three. Well, as many as 10% of recovered coronavirus patients in China tested positive again after being discharged from the hospital, according to a new report. Doctors on the front lines of the outbreak in Wuhan, China, where the virus emerged, reported that between 3 and 10% of cured patients became reinfected with the illness, though it's unclear whether they were contagious the second time. The South China Morning Post reported, it's also reported in the New York Post. And Elton John and some of his most famous friends were stuck at home, just like the rest of America during the coronavirus pandemic, which allowed the Fox Presents the I Heart Living Room concert for America. It provided some entertainment, raised money for first responders on Sunday night while offering a unique glimpse into the lives of celebrities. Again, sheltering in place. Here we are all together at home. You've got your family and loved ones, and I'm keeping mine close. We're taking care of each other, looking out for each other, doing what we can during this crisis. Uh, He said at the kickoff of the program, there's a lot of grief out there, uncertainty and fear, but let me tell you what's going to keep us together all the goodness that's happening in the world, end quote. Alicia Keys, who sat at a purple piano in her home without makeup and with a hole visible on the shoulder of her casual t-shirt, kicked off the performances with a message encouraging Americans to remember how resilient we are, dedicating a soulful rendition of Rise Up to first responders and medical professionals keeping the nation safe. Fox ditched commercials for that concert, instead using breaks to encourage viewers to help Feeding America and First Responders Children's Foundation, two of the many charitable organizations helping victims and first responders during the pandemic. The unprecedented event featured the biggest names in music performing from their homes as they practiced social distancing and used phones to record their acts. It was an interesting uh, effort. On this day in history, 1981, President Ronald Reagan shot, uh, is shot and seriously injured outside a Washington, D.C. hotel by John W. Hinckley, Jr. White House Press Secretary James Brady, Secretary, rather, Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy, and District of Columbia Police Officer Thomas Delhanty were also injured. On this day in history, 1822, Florida becomes a U.S. territory. 1867, U.S. Secretary of State William Seward He reaches agreement with Russia to purchase the territory of Alaska for $7.2 million, a deal ridiculed by critics as Seward's Folly. They're not laughing now. On this day in history, 2002, Britain's Queen Mother Elizabeth 101 dies at Royal Lodge in Windsor outside of London. 2004, in a reversal, President George W. Bush agrees to let National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice testify publicly and under oath before an independent panel investigating the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And in 2009 on this day, President Barack Obama asserts unprecedented government control over the auto industry, rejecting turnaround plans from General Motors and Chrysler and raising the prospect of controlled bankruptcy for either ailing auto giant. And finally, on this day in history, at Cape Canaveral, SpaceX successfully launches and then retrieves its first recycled rocket. Well, we are living in the age of COVID-19, and it has uh, presented challenges to all of us. As you may recall, or might be learning for the first time, we at the radio station, for the most part, are doing our jobs from our respective homes, Now, that presents something of a challenge. I've commandeered Dan Rice's office slash music room. James bland is in an office in his home, and Clark is in an office in his home. So we are attempting to provide for you the kind of programming that you have come to expect, but... Oh, a little differently. So I hope you uh, can uh, put up with the little differences that you might be experiencing, but appreciate the programming as well. As I mentioned, later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Wilfred Riley. He's the author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. And these are subjects about which, if you do attempt to even question, not to mention debunk, that you uh, may in fact be labeled a bigot or a racist or other things. So we'll talk with Dr. Riley about that. And then at five o'clock, we'll talk with Deborah Green. She is a local worship pastor at Tigered Covenant Church. She's a retreat speaker. She's just an incredible uh, Bible teacher. We're going to talk about how she is navigating the new normal, as the rest of us are, and how that has impacted her um, church and how they're reaching out to their members and beyond. So that's coming up later in today's program. Hydroxychloroquine uh, is, uh, continuing to be looked to for a possible way of treating. It's not a cure, but a way of treating coronavirus or COVID-19. France officially sanctioned the drug, and the move comes after infectious diseases specialist, Didier Relon has announced new clinical results, which can be assessed uh, here, that show 78 out of 80 patients treated with uh, chloroquine recovered within five days. So hydroxychloroquine has been uh, approved by the... Uh, FDA that issued emergency authorization to use it to treat coronavirus. Also, the Democratic governor of Michigan was the latest anti-Trump politician to crack down on prescriptions of hydroxychloroquine. So there's a battle going on with uh, whether or not that drug will be made available broadly. Nearly 60,000 as of late Sunday in New York have, um, which is over 40 percent of the uh, cases in the United States, in seven, uh, a seven-hour stretch Sunday morning, 98 people died in New York City. From New uh, New York, reporter Aaron Durkin on Sunday says today 13% of NYPD is out sick, 4,651 officers. The police commissioner, Dermot Shea, said that he expects 900 to have tested positive for coronavirus by tomorrow morning. And that was this morning. The disease is growing in Louisiana, especially in New Orleans as well. Well, businesses are facing a pretty tough two weeks ahead. Well, three weeks, four weeks, many weeks ahead. American companies, from the owner of a single liquor store in Boston to corporate giants in um, other places like Macy's, must decide what to do about April's bills. Which obligations do they pay? Which do they put off? How many employees can they afford to keep on payroll? Can they get a break on rent? The decisions they make this week could shape how deeply the economic uh, impact will be the damage to the uh, economy by the coronavirus pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon. While well, a 108 year old woman has died of coronavirus, she survived the Spanish flu that killed her sister in 1918. So sister died of pandemic 102 years apart. And the mayor of New York said, if churches meet against the wishes of the city, they will face fines and officials may close the building permanently. He doesn't have the authority to close a building permanently, but uh, Mayor de Blasio has threatened to close churches and synagogues if they do not close. These are some of the headlines that I've been reading on that very subject. Arrest warrant issued for Tampa megachurch pastor who led packed services Despite safer at home orders, this is the pastor um, of, uh, oh, let's see, I, it doesn't say the name of the church anyway. Um, the sheriff of Hillsborough County said one of the Sunday services held up to 500 people in attendance. The River of uh, Tampa Bay Church held two services on Sunday, said even uh, the uh, sheriff even offered, offered bus transportation to those services. or Rather, the pastor of the church's live stream showed a packed crowd cheering and applauding they have access to technology allowing them to live stream their service over the internet and broadcast to their members for the safety of their own homes but instead they chose to gather at church another headline churches hold crowded service in defiance of governor uh, government coronavirus uh, guidance chicago cops disperse crowd at church for violating coronavirus stay at home order police break up funeral with 40 to 60 people at northwest side church mid stay-at-home order. And then there's this. Several beloved church leaders in Flint, Michigan, have died from the coronavirus. Three religious leaders in the area died in the past few days in Michigan. Uh, becomes one of the top states uh, with over 5,000 cases, just behind New York, New Jersey, and California. Bishop Robert Earl Smith, Sr., 82. Pastor Kevlin Jones, 72. of Bountiful Love Ministries. Elder Freddie Brown, Jr. of Jackson Memorial Temple died after testing positive. For COVID, according to the Christian Post. Um, These men were not holding services in contravention of the order of states and municipalities, but are the latest victims. Uh, De Blasio, once again, stepping over the mark, threatening to permanently close the buildings, doesn't have the authority to do so, but he certainly has expressed his frustration and his authority to prevent the people from gathering there during this stay-at-home order. Meanwhile, Staten Island Amazon workers are staging a walkout over coronavirus. They're demanding the facility be shut down and cleaned out after a worker tested positive. Instacart workers are threatening a strike as they complain about safety as well. And the same is true for Whole Foods employees. I'm not sure if that's across the country, but they're threatening uh, Tuesday to stage a walkout in opposition to some of the practices of Amazon. As I mentioned earlier, there are three new deaths in the state of Oregon. Um, known cases now here in the state have surpassed 600, according uh, according to Oregon health authorities. Additionally, 58 residents in Benton, Clackamas, Deschutes, Douglas, Jackson, Josephine, Lane, Marion, Multnomah, Polk, Tillamook, Wasco, Washington, Yamhill counties tested positive for the virus in the um, last 24 hours. Now, the numbers varied from one county to another, but 58 uh, in total. During that time, more than 1,450 new people received coronavirus test results, up from 1,250 the previous day, which resulted in 69 positive tests, according to figures published on the Health Authority's website. There are now no known coronavirus cases linked to 24 of Oregon's 36 counties. Again, 168 in Washington, 123 in Marion, 100 in Multnomah County, 40 in Clackamas County, 36 in Lynn, 25 in Deschutes, 20 in Jackson County, 15 known cases in Polk County, 14 in Yamhill County, 12 in Lane, 10 in Josephine, 9 in Benton, 8 in Douglas County, 5 in Wasco, 4 in Umatilla Umatilla and Clackamas Counties, 3 in Clatsop and Tillamook Counties, 2 in Hood River County, and 1 each in Columbia, Grant, Lincoln, Morrow, and Union Counties. State health officials have reported 13 previous COVID-19 deaths in the state They've included residents in Clackamas, Lane, Lynn, Multnomah, Marion, Washington, Yamhill Counties. All had underlying medical conditions, state health officials said, but didn't release other details. Speaking at a coronavirus White House uh, briefing on Sunday, the president uh, said that the coronavirus peak in death rate likely uh, will come in two weeks, and he's extended the social distancing guidelines through the 30th of April. He had expressed just last week a hope that we could reunite together during the Easter weekend, but that is not to be. And again, he has extended that for the next couple of weeks, then well, through four weeks, through the end of April. We've also learned that 12 OHSU hospital staff have tested positive for COVID-19, according to the hospital's president. As of Sunday, the 12 were out of 846 nurses, doctors, and other staff who were tested. The president of the university said, uh, Monday during a press conference thrown by healthcare unions to emphasize the shortage of the masks, gloves, gowns, and other safety equipment needed to protect them from contracting the virus. The number reflects the risks doctors, nurses, and other clinicians are taking in treating people with a highly infectious virus. The number also illustrates the importance of adequate personal protective equipment, or PPE. This is one cry, hue and cry that we're hearing all across the country. We need more PPE personal protective equipment. People are our priority. Our workforce deserves more. Well, OHSU Hospital has ramped up its in-house coronavirus testing in the last two weeks, which could account for part of that peak. Employees at OHSU Hospital have been uh, able to access drive-through testing if they had symptoms of coronavirus. Weeks ago, a hospital spokeswoman said that leaders hope to expand that capacity. On the 16th, the hospital had only one patient with covid a confirmed case, COVID-19, uh, but has tested 23 others and we're waiting for results. As of Monday, uh, the uh, uh, president of the union said that the hospital has 21 COVID-19 patients with 18 of those tested on site. The gathered public officials on the conference call, including Governor Kate Brown, Senator Jeff Merkley, Representative Suzanne Bonamici, when asked how many healthcare workers statewide have tested positive or suspected positive None had an answer, so we don't know how widespread this is. But as you're praying for those who are on the front lines, do remember those men and women who are serving in our medical corps, if you will, and are putting themselves and their families at risk by being in proximity to um, to these patients. Well, the president has approved a major disaster declaration for Oregon due to the coronavirus outbreak the White House announced on Sunday. The declaration orders federal assistance to aid the state, tribal, and local recovery efforts. The order is backdated to the 20th of January and brings to 18 the number of states with disaster declarations due to the coronavirus. Governor Brown uh, declared a state of emergency on the 8th of March. On the 23rd, she issued an executive order directing residents to stay home to the maximum extent possible and ordered the closure of retail businesses where close personal contact is difficult to avoid, such as hair salons, gyms and theaters. She praised the federal declaration, saying, However, this is far from everything Oregon needs from the federal government to actively and effectively combat this crisis. We have a number of significant requests pending with the federal government. First and foremost, Oregon's request for more personal protective equipment from the national stockpile. In addition, a significant part of our disaster declaration request was for individual assistance for all Oregon counties and tribes, including childcare assistance, crisis counseling, disaster case management, disaster legal services, disaster unemployment assistance for Oregonians. That request is still also pending and would provide significant relief to Oregon families if approved. In other news, iconic Portland bookstore Powell's has rehired some of its employees to fill an increase in online orders. The owner and CEO, Emily Powell, thanked the community for its support. Your kind words, messages of encouragement, ideas for perseverance and orders for books have taken our breath away, she said in a statement. The company laid off nearly 400 people earlier this month, shut all five of its bookstores, Powell said that they've been able to rehire more than 100 employees with full-time hours and benefits. Early Sunday, the Oregon Health Department said that the state had 548 people test positive for COVID-19, up from 479 on Saturday. The total of 13 deaths uh, remained the same. For most people, the coronavirus causes mild to moderate symptoms such as fever and cough that clear up in several weeks. For some, especially older adults and people with existing health problems, it can cause more severe illness, including pneumonia and death. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Wilfred Riley. He's the author of "Taboo: Ten Facts You Can't Talk About," but we're going to talk about him right here on the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We are glad to have you with us today. We have some very exciting guests that we're going to share with you. So, I'm glad that you're with us because there's some myths we're going to debunk before the day is over. We're also going to talk with Deborah Greenidge. She's a local worship pastor at Tiger Covenant Church. We're going to talk with her about how she is. Uh, Managing this new normal from her vantage point, and we'll be conducting these kinds of interviews throughout the remainder of the week, just giving you a glimpse into how others are managing while we're all, well, sheltering in place. My guest, my first guest today is Dr. Wilfred Riley. He is the author of Taboo 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Uh, You might be wondering, why on earth are we talking about them then? It's because (laughs) while others will not, we must. Uh, The mainstream media and the left insist that America has never been more racist and sexist and the police are waging war on black Americans and that white privilege is destroying opportunities for minorities. Now, is that true? That's the question. Is it true? If you even dare to repeat these taboo truths, you will be ostracized as a bigot. At this point, what America needs is an honest conversation based on common sense and cold, hard facts. And yes, they they do still exist in the 21st century. Well, my guest is Dr. Wilfred Riley. He is a professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He's the author of Hate Crimes, Hoax and the $50 Million Question. His writing has been featured in Commentary, Quillette, USA Today, and the Washington Times, among others. His research interests include modern American race relations and the use of modern American quantitative methods to test sacred cow theories. And today we're going to test a series of Sacred Cow Theories with Dr. Riley. Dr. Wilfred Riley, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
2: Well, I'm so grateful for this book and the previous book that you've written on. Essentially, both books uh, cover taboos. As an African-American, it's very frustrating to hear uh, statements being made that are not backed up by the facts. And if you deign to stress that perhaps the perception is misleading then, as I mentioned a moment ago, you were labeled as something other than acceptable. Let's talk about what motivated you to write a book on these 10 facts that maybe you and I should be whispering you can't really talk about.
0: Well, the inspiration for the book, I wrote my first book, uh, Hate Crime Hoax, for Regnery in 2019. And one of the things I found with that book was that a literal majority, not of you know all alleged racial fights or something like that, but that of the most high-profile hate crime incidents you're talking about Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Erica Thomas, uh, Yasmin Saweed in the torn hijab, Duke Lacrosse, you really could go on for well, a whole book about this, turned out to be fakes. And I looked at why, and I got into a whole bunch of things from the standard motivation of sort of your common criminal. I teach criminal justice and political science in the background, but more importantly, to the culture of victimization developing in the USA that we're responsible for this. And in chapter two of the book, I mentioned some of the other things that went along with this idea, what I called the continuing oppression narrative, Uh, the idea of overwhelming white privilege, the idea that the great races are nearly at war, the idea that our police and soldiers have become kind of a corrupt machine, all of this almost Marxist stuff that's regularly said about American society. And a lot of people, more people than spoke about any other component of the book, really, began coming up to me and talking about this chapter. And apparently some of them mentioned it to my publisher as well. And they they reached out with the idea of, what about another book about these things you can't talk about? So I wrote one. I mean, uh, chapter one of Taboo looks at Black Lives Matter. Uh, is there any truth to the claim that police are shooting unarmed black men? And the answer is no. In a typical year, uh, white police officers shoot about 17 unarmed black men. There are more than 1,000 people, and typically you're shot by cops. They're almost all armed, uh, working-class white or African-American males, mostly committing crimes. So the Black Lives Matter narrative is completely false. You're talking about 1% of a small number of cases. Chapter two is, you know, is there a race war? Is there a broader epidemic of kind of white-on-minority crime? If you remember about a year ago, before the coronavirus storyline and the Greta Thunberg storyline this was the thing really dominating the media. I mean, uh, Barbecue Becky and Pool Party Paula and all this, the idea that minorities and whites were in constant conflict and whites were usually responsible for it. So I looked at that and I found, again, that there's really empirically no evidence of that at all. Um, in a typical year, there are about a total of 600,000 violent interracial crimes, whether that's white on black or black on white, With Hispanics counted as white for this, this analysis. And what's more, that's about 5% of crime. There are about 12 million crimes a year. So this isn't a huge problem. The first place person most likely kills your ex-wife. But I also found that of the interracial crime that does occur, more than 70% of it, closer to 80%, was black on white rather than white on black. So that narrative, we're not in danger from each other in the first place, but certainly mobs of middle class white people are not roaming the streets beating up black guys. So that's chapter two. And then you get into a whole bunch of other things. You're not supposed to talk about race and IQ. Can men decide to become women at will? What does it mean to be a racist? And the end of the book is what you mentioned, white privilege, cultural appropriation. I also take a couple shots at the extreme, quote unquote, alt-right, where I ask, I mean, what's the chance that we're actually going to break the country up into, quote unquote, ethnostates? I mean, that's about zero. What would that actually require? So the book is focused on discussing these things you're not supposed to bring up at a dinner party and finding that a lot of them are based in nothing. They're not real.
2: However, these are narratives that are being widely spread and repeated in the mainstream media. Is it out of ignorance on their part or is it a matter of usefulness? (laughs) Uh, Is there a value to the culture of victimization in that if you champion these narratives, that there's somehow a value to that that can be derived from certain groups or perhaps the media itself?
0: Well, I think that both of those are true at some level. I mean, when I think back to, I'm sure most of the people that I partied with in college in the Big Ten voted Democratic for at least a couple of years. I don't think they were secretly planning to bring down the country or something like that. So I think that a lot of people simply believe what they're frequently told by, you know, their union local or, you know, by their church on left or far right or by their parents or something like that. But I definitely think that there is an organized grievance industry in the USA, and that can't be ignored. And that's one of the things that kept coming back to me when I was writing the book. I mean, when you ask in law, which is my background, there's this question, qui buono, which means who benefits and sort of dog lack, who gets rich from something. And in the USA, there's an incredible amount of money invested in the idea that, for example, there's still significant oppression or the races are still significantly clashing with one another. I mean, that's the underlying justification. If you look at it for almost all affirmative action programs, other than a weak diversity rationale, that's the justification for minority set asides. That's the justification for the giant budget of the major activist groups. Uh, The figure I always cite is that the Southern Poverty Law Center by itself has a well-invested endowment of $500 million, which is a little more than the state university I teach at. So, I mean, I think, I don't know what every cub reporter thinks, but I think that when you see the head of CARE, the Council for American-Islamic Relations, or you know, the president of the SPLC or something like this, speaking on television or, you know, giving advice, they're saying what they are saying for a reason. So, yeah, there are people that have substantial investments. I mean, the classic Al Sharpe and Jesse Jackson, Louis Farrakhan, in the idea of this clash. And it's very important for social scientists and just people in society to look at some of these claims and say... Is that real?
2: I know that when you challenge these taboo subjects, you're immediately labeled in most cases, uh, in many cases, you're uh, either an Uncle Tom or a bigot. So people are reluctant to question these figures because they don't uh, they don't see that it matters to those who are uh, who are making the claim that the police are murdering black people in record numbers and that we all ought to fear uh, that is going to happen to us.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and you mentioned both. I was going to say, you know, as a black guy, you don't normally get called a Nazi. You get called Uncle Tom. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of reluctance to have many discussions. I think one of the reasons the the sort of shouting alt right isn't challenged all that often, and for example, Twitter or Reddit, is that no one wants to argue for two hours with a bunch of guys who have frogs or their profile pictures. But it's it's much more significant in the other direction. Yes. People are afraid that if they say something that's absolutely obvious, like there's still racism in the USA, but black people aren't legally oppressed. That's a statement that I open up some of my speeches with as a black businessman. I mean, that's been true since 1964. If you say that, a backlash is pretty much guaranteed. But I mean, for one thing, as you know, a controversial center-right writer, I kind of enjoy that. It sells me books, so I'm in a luxury position there. But I also think more people need to man or woman up and do that. Because if you don't challenge people saying absolute nonsense many, many innocent individuals are going to hear that absolute nonsense and believe it. And this can cross all lines today. Um, I was on, I think, Facebook earlier today, and one of my friends posted, if you catch coronavirus, you have a one in 10 chance of dying. And coronavirus is no joke whatsoever. But if you're a healthy adult male, it's about one in 400. So I mean, if the more panicking information that is out there in the public space without people challenging it, the more afraid and nervous and cowardly people are going to be. So I think individuals certainly in the sciences, certainly in business, where you know this information, do have almost a duty to say it. I mean, no, the races aren't at war. No, there aren't mobs of middle-class white guys attacking black people.
2: Let's talk about cultural appropriation and white privilege. These are two phrases that have become popularized. And the idea is that if a particular group, let's say African Americans, perform differently, then you can link that to cultural yep. appropriation or um, uh, the, uh, um, the white privilege. Discuss that as you do in the book. And these concepts, as well as whether or not they're accurate.
0: Well, you just did a very good job of outlining what might be the main theme of the book, which is an attack on this idea of kind of institutional prejudice, whether that's against minorities. Now you hear people claiming it exists against whites, it exists against women, allegedly. The idea of institutional prejudice is that you can take any area where one group underperforms another group and attribute that to racism. And this is kind of the default in American upper middle class society, right? Like if I say, look, we need, you know, yeah, we have fought the whites in the past or fewer of us, we lost. But right now, let's focus on getting these black test scores up. If I said something like that at a meeting of the Urban League, the immediate response would be, well, those test scores are low because of racism. This is a default that comes up almost all the time. One of the things that I find when I do real scientific research is that it is almost never true. The simple argument that a gap in performance between two groups means racism doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, the NBA, for example, my favorite sporting league, is about 75% black. So someone who is consistent with their argument, they're not just racist against whites, they're consistent with this, would have to say that the NBA is wildly prejudiced against, for example, Jewish Americans and Asians, Irishmen. I don't think anyone believes that's the case. I think black guys and Russians seem to be better at basketball right now, for whatever reason. And we find this across the board. So, I mean, uh, something I talk about, the average black man makes 86 percent of what the average white guy does. And you'll see a a similar analysis being conducted for women as versus men. And again, the universal, universal explanation for this is racism. What I find is that this gap almost goes away if you adjust for three things. Uh, One of them is age. So the average black guy is 27. The average white guy is 58. This is what you call a modal average. It's just the most common age. So you get about 10 years closer if you use a standard median average. But still, there's an enormous 20 to 30-year gap there. So if you're saying, well, a 27-year-old guy is more likely to play some professional ball or even steal a purse than a 58-year-old guy, that's not going to shock anybody. You don't need to bring race into that at all. Uh, A second variable is region. Uh, Black people are more likely to live in the south because, bluntly, that's where the boats landed. So everyone in the South has a similar, across many states, like Mississippi, working middle-class income. There's not a huge black-white gap. But there are more blacks than whites, if that makes sense, in some of those states, Mississippi, Alabama. And the third thing is tested SAT score. Um, For whatever reason, there's a counter-academic element of black culture right now. So obviously, if you get out of school, whether or not racism plays some tiny role here, if you get out of school with a D average, you're not going to do as well as a guy with a B average. So if you compare the same guy, a black guy from Dearborn, Michigan, who's 5'11 with a B average, with a white guy from Dearborn, Michigan, who's 5'11 with a B average, and they get out of high school the same day, and they start applying to construction crews and sales offices, those guys are going to have almost identical outcomes. That's been the case since 1975. So that's one of the things I keep saying over and over and over in the book, that if you take these gaps between people in terms of everything from alleged athleticism, advantaging my group, to wealth-advantaging the Caucasian group, and you adjust for things like age or birth order or time of residency in the country, the gap goes away. So white privilege and cultural appropriation, to me, are just two extensions of the idea that racism is to blame for everything. White privilege is the idea that all whites are more privileged than all or almost all minorities by virtue of being white. And the evidence for that is, again, whites have more money or there are more whites in leadership positions or something like that. And cultural appropriation is the idea that just taking something from another society. So, for example, white guys using dreadlocks or wearing East Asian fashion, like brightly colored masks or kimono-style dresses, this is a form of oppression. But, again, I think all of this is a waste of time. If you actually adjust for basic things like age or school grades, The gaps between blacks and whites go away, and you don't need all sorts of fancy, ridiculous explanations for them. And, I mean, just to have a little more fun with this, if you go into the idea of cultural appropriation seriously, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because almost everything that we do is borrowed from another culture. Um, I'm of black and native descent. So, I mean, if cultural appropriation is a bad thing, can I wear pants? We had robes instead. You know, most well-made small cars come from Japan. Do we have to stop driving them? My favorite cuisine is Indian. So a lot of this just strikes me as excuse-making. It's a way to explain things that actually have another real explanation that doesn't have to do with race in the first place, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's useful to, to rest on race, but it's not accurate. Do you think people generally are just lazy, or that it's useful to um, decide to hold a position that may gain some, some um value for the individual or groups who are holding those positions?
0: I think it's a mix. I think that everyone uses what are called heuristics. So, I mean, if I were in, uh, which are sort of general views of groups and populations, including your own. So, I mean, I can tell you that if I was in my old neighborhood in Chicago, which was a working class African-American, Irish-American and Italian-American neighborhood, Bridgeport, and I saw three big guys with shaved heads coming out of a punk bar, I'd prepare to either fight or run away. Because the impression would be these are you know four or five working class white dudes, probably skinheads. They're not going to like me very much as a big black guy. I don't think that analysis makes me racist against Caucasians. I don't think that someone who does that in reverse with four or five African-American men would necessarily be a racist. So I, I think we do all have these narratives. I mean, there was substantial ethnic conflict in the USA until minimum the 1950s, 1960s, and it'd be silly to deny that. So some of these ideas, like, well, if we have a problem, it's probably due to white racism or to conflict with the white. In the black community, are understandable. They just don't make a lot of sense anymore. Uh, Thomas Sowell, actually, who really inspired a lot of my writing, was the guy who took a look at what I just did, which is called multivariate analysis. It's complex, it's clunky, it takes computers, but it gives you real information. He did some of the first MV analyses, and he found, I mean, back in 1969, That five years after the Civil Rights Act, if you took a black guy and a white guy that had two parents in the home, a library card, a few other basic things, they would have the same income, they would have the same chances of getting married. This was true in the North from that point. It was true in the South from a few years after. And I mean, I personally would believe that's been true since then. So one, a lot of people just don't know that. And then again, I think there are people who essentially make a living from ratcheting up racial tensions. Um, This occurs substantially on the left. I mean, I don't think Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Minister Farrakhan, and I don't think those Sean King. I don't think those guys necessarily have an interest in seeing less racial conflict. Uh, And I think you see the same thing on the far right as well. I mean, there are a number of websites with names like, you know, white girl beaten badly that are basically just listings of you know, violent black crimes against white people. So I think that people who make their living from kind of stoking those racial fires don't want to see those fires go out. But in reality, I don't think those fires have been the primary determinant of how a hardworking black man or Appalachian white guy or whatever does since about 1950. I think, I think that's just a fact.
2: We're talking about the book Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Dr. Wilfred Riley is my guest. The book is published by Regnery. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Wilfred Riley. His book is titled Taboo 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. The book is published by Regnery. I'm so enjoying hearing you. Um, challenge what has become sort of a narrative that's never challenged in our culture. You've used the word racist a few times. Let's stop for just a moment, as you do in the book, and talk about what it means, what racist means. It actually has a meaning, although it's so often misapplied, to situations and to individuals.
0: Yeah, what being a racist means is, Real simple. I mean, a a racist is an individual who dislikes members of another race for genetic reasons. This is Chapter 6 of the book, because I became almost confused. I did what you might call oppo research for the book. I read the best steel man papers on the other side, bell hooks and Derek Bell and that kind of thing. And a lot of it's very intelligent, although, again, from opponents. But one thing that kept coming back to me was these oddball definitions used for racism. And what racism means on the American political left today very often is something like any system that produces disparate disparate outcomes. You see that phrase, disparate outcomes, used professionally in the law. So the idea is, again, that if fewer African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Italian-Americans, whatever, then the average of the population make it into a certain profession, like Major League Baseball, that must be the result of racism. And we've already seen that that's unrealistic. I mean, you have to look at age, you have to look at income, you have to look at a whole bunch of other things before you conclude that differences between groups have anything to do with race at all. That's Thomas Sowell's whole body of work, Walter Williams' whole body of work. But, I mean, the the issue with the definition of racism is actually that there's a very clear definition of racism. So at the start of Chapter 6, I take... The actual page for racism, the phrase in every major dictionary, Webster's, Oxford, the Free Dictionary, Wikipedia, so on, I compare them, and I find that they're all pretty much the same definition. A racist is someone who is a genetic bigot, someone who really strongly, not because of culture, but because of who these people are, dislikes another racial group. And I draw the obvious conclusion from that that anyone can be a racist or anyone can be a bigot. So this, again, is one of these arguments that you've seen fairly often on the political left, that only if you are Caucasian can you be racist, because only the Caucasian group has power. And, I mean, to me, first of all, that's not a component of the definition. And second of all, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, During the period when most of the papers I just described on the left came out, the president of the United States was a black man, Barack Obama um the attorney general usually considered the fourth most powerful person in the USA was a black man eric holder the secretary of state was a woman hillary clinton so it, it a lot of these things just sort of seem to be claims kind of the idea of let's assume something so assuming that we have no power we can't be prejudiced and i think both parts of that are false a racist is just someone who strongly dislikes members of another race
2: in your in chapter 8 taboo obvious fact number 9 a sane immigration policy isn't racist. Now, that's another taboo that we are not really permitted to to, uh, to talk about because it's very unpopular that if you think a sane immigration policy is necessary for all kinds of reasons, economic being one of them, that somehow underlying that view is you are a racist. Can you address that before our time runs out?
0: Yeah, that, that one surprised me. Excuse me. But, I mean, uh, I said in the book um – That most countries should have sane, traditional immigration policies where you'd admit people who were, how did I phrase it, only sane and not mentally ill, non-criminal, able-bodied except in exceptional cases, and able to pass a basic IQ test or get a job. And that, to me, was just the most obvious sort of common sense. You'd only let in people who weren't mentally ill, weren't criminals were, let's say, healthy, I don't think anyone's going to object if you lost an eye or something, and were able to find employment. They had a letter from a potential employer, they could pass a screening test, something like that. This was by far the most controversial thing that I've said so far in the book, where people have emailed me and said things like, are you discriminating against the mentally ill? And I think that shows, or are you discriminating against former criminals from other countries? And I think to some extent the answer there is yes. But that shows the weird place that we wound up in as a country after decades of political correctness, I would say.
2: Are you optimistic that we will shift and turn the great ship of state around?
0: I think so. I actually think that the current crisis is going to illustrate uh, some of the things that we need to do. Um, I, I still think we're a strong people. I mean, there, there's uh, some fighting as brothers fight, but blacks, what most people think of as whites, you know, Italians and ethnic individuals, Hispanics. We've shared a country for hundreds of years and done pretty well during, for example, World War II. So I think that... We are, again, going to have to pull back together as a result of this. I mean, my friends, virtually every young man I know is shopping for elderly neighbors and so on. But more to the point, should all our medicines be made in China? Should our weapons be made in China? Maybe not.
2: Dr. Wilfred Riley, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you write something again soon. We can have you back.
0: Sounds good. You as well look forward to coming back. Have a good day. Thank
2: you so much. You too. Once again, the book is titled Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. The book is published by Regnery, and there's so much more in the book that our conversation could not reflect because of the limited time. I recommend everybody read it so that we're all thinking clearly and understand what's true in our country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, good afternoon, and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us this second hour of the program. For the last few days, I've been trying to engage in conversation with people just like you and me who are trying to navigate life in the new normal with the COVID-19 threatening the health and the life of some of our neighbors. Well, I've invited Deborah Greenish to join me now. Deborah's been a music pastor for 28 plus years. In addition to music ministry, she's taught music, directed high school and collegiate choirs, recorded and produced CDs, led worship, taught at weekend retreats and seminars. She is one of my all time favorite worship leaders on the planet. And one of my dearest friends, and I'm just so honored to have you with us here today, Deborah, to just talk about how you're staying close to Christ, how you're staying encouraged and navigating this new normal. Welcome.
3: Well, thank you so much for that intro.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, How am I staying normal?
3: (laughs) That's the question. How do you stay normal in this? It's uncharted territory in so many ways. Probably about six months ago, I went through a very hard time emotionally, and the Lord gave me a thought that has carried me through, which was, Deborah, this is a comma, not a period. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about that comma, which means take a pause in a sentence. A comma is pause and clarify the meaning. And that thought helped me get through that difficult season. And Um, I think it's a relevant thought today that sometimes God puts pauses in our lives, commas. It's the moment where we can stop and be frustrated, fearful, angry, or we could stop and go, okay, let me reflect. Let me uh, clarify. Let me do some work with my Heavenly Father and see if there's some good nuggets here that I might have missed if I hadn't gone through this season. So
2: that's what I've been trying to do. I know one of the challenges for all of us, and that's, that's excellent. Uh, one of the challenges for all of us is that we are supposed to maintain a social distance from one another, and that can be a challenge. Although we live in the 21st century, you and I can pick up the phone, we can do FaceTime, we can do Facebook. There are all kinds of ways that you can connect uh, with people. What are you doing to stay connected with people? And as a worship pastor, um, how is your church staying connected?
3: Well, of course, everyone's trying to live stream, which we're doing as well. We also divided up our whole church list amongst our leaders, and we, are, we each have like a chunk of people that we're just calling, texting, making sure they're okay to have what they need. Our church runs a food bank, so that's been a great resource for people who struggle with food, and we can um, deliver food to folks or... Um, tell them to come when the food bank's open. Um, I guess the the biggest thing we're all trying to do. I, I'm trying to do this with our our worship team is is connect. Um, one of our one of the people in our choir had a birthday, so we got on Zoom and all sang Happy Birthday to her. It was incredibly horrible, right, with the delay, <laughs> and it was awful. But it was so good seeing and talking to everyone that. You know, we just are trying creative ways to stay connected that way. And it's helping tremendously.
2: Yeah. Um, This weekend, uh, it came to me, I'm going to do a drive-by with my mother. Now, no, we didn't load up the car with weapons and, you know, (laughs) go to our worst enemy's (laughs) house. We decided that since uh, my mother, who's 89 and lives with my husband and me, since she cannot see her children, she can't see her grandchildren or her great-grandchildren, we were going to hop in the car and do a drive-by. So I coordinated with everybody in the family, uh, made a a schedule. This is where we're going first, then we're going here. It was only maybe 10 minutes uh, per location, but we'd stop by, let them know we were there. They came out. They were socially distanced. They had an opportunity to engage in conversation, to see each other. Then we went to the next location and moved on. So we were creatively... Connecting, but maintaining what the uh, civil authorities have said is in everyone's best interest. So we have to maybe be a little more creative and work at it, but we can connect to one another even during this uh, this challenging season.
3: Yes, you know my family's very musical, Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, two of my siblings got together. And if you know my brother Timothy, you can go on his Facebook wall, and he and Paul. Put together this little video. Paul played the organ and Timothy sang on top of it. That's how they're connecting, um, staying in touch. Whatever, and it doesn't have to be the same way that I do it. I think every core group of people um, has a language, you know, something that comes easy to you. Um, something you 're gifted with that 's not hard for you to jump into because it 's so much embedded in your character and personality, whatever that thing is, use that to connect yeah. and to be a blessing or to be a help to someone else, whatever that thing is. Uh, we should all take advantage of that and use it in this time when people are people are really struggling.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I appreciated uh, that you did early on, and I'm now seeing other people do it as well, is you sat down at your piano, you set up your, your mic and camera. I'm not sure how you did it with your phone or whatever.
3: I didn't it with my
2: phone. You just led worship. And it was such a wonderful and refreshing thing to, to find on social media as you're scrolling through. Someone just stops and encourages us all to enter into worship together. And that has been such a sweet gift. I think many musicians are now doing, um, sharing worship Mm -hmm. songs, and I'm noticing several others have have done the same. Uh, But we can connect with each other through technology that, you know, previous generations during the flu uh, pandemics and that sort of thing, they did not have that luxury. So we are really blessed in that regard.
3: I've also been trying to identify things that normally I wouldn't have the time to kind of think about or do, but that I've put on this little wait list. Um, whether it be learning a new something or reading that book or whatever, um, uh, so for me the other day I went scrolling on YouTube for exercise videos because you know we're stuck in the house uh, mostly. Um, but I, I live in a neighborhood that's right next to a park and that's really helpful. But I was looking for a workout video and and it, wow I found the perfect one for me and it just got me. Sweaty, like I want it to be, right? To work out a little bit and blow off some steam. Uh, it's just a thousand ways that we can um, invest in our growth, even though we're all a little, quite isolated from each other. Um, make an investment in your your growth. So um, that's one thing I've been thinking about doing. I have a, a music program. I've been Trying to learn, and I just, oh, you know, I'm old. I don't want to learn another thing. <laughs> um, but I went, you know, I got time now. You need to try to learn that program. So that's what I'm doing.
2: Taking advantage of the time that you have. Uh, you mentioned yeah. earlier that Tiger Covenant was uh, streaming on Facebook, uh, your service this past Sunday and then the Sunday before that. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of doing that? I had a story, in fact, I'm reading a series of stories about churches, about a fifth of whom are still meeting together in their sanctuary as a congregation. And I know there's a sort of a tension between, uh, you know, not avoiding the assembling of yourselves together and the scripture that says that we need to obey the civil authorities. Um, But there are some churches who are deciding we're just going to get together anyway. Now, we won't debate the efficacy of that, but talk about the challenge of uh, coming together as a worship team so that you can do the live stream. I know you did it once at the, the church building Um, with the appropriate social distancing and you did it once from your home. How did, how did you do that?
3: Right. We've kind of just slowly tried to follow the guidelines when they issued the statement that they didn't want groups of more than 250. Our church is smaller than that. So we still had church that week. There's about 50 or 60 of us there. And then the next week they changed the guidelines. So we did not have a service per se, but a core of us under 10 people met at the church and, filmed the service, and, and then they're they're wanting us to just stay home. So this week we did it at my home. The challenge, though, is, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not technologically savvy, and um, it's been a challenge to figure out how to do that from my home with a uh, quality that makes it easy for people yeah. to join in. So a group of us coordinated on phone, okay, how can we make it so people can see the words of- so we figured out Apple TV on my TV, and then um, you know we just tried to figure out the best we could. But I, I did notice that our our video streaming last week was there were a couple of difficulties. But you know what? We're in a season where people are very forgiving about that stuff because they understand we didn't have time to learn it and buy this and buy that. We just want to connect. So I I think it was fine this week. But it's Monday, so we're we're Diligently trying to figure out, how can we do this better next week? Um, it's, it's been a challenge for people like me who aren't technologically savvy. And uh, I have phone calls into to all my tech nerds to please help. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's such a gift to have a connection point, whether it's uh, polished and perfect or it's just comfortable and uh, adequate. The fact that we can somehow have a connection point and be together, I think, is so meaningful right now. I've thought a lot about previous generations who haven't had the luxury of technology as we do to engage in conversation. They lived at great distances from one another. So you just wondered how your neighbors were doing without having any way to connect. So we're really blessed to have uh, that right. technology. Again, we're talking with Deborah Greenit. She is the uh, music pastor, uh, worship pastor at Tiger Covenant Church. We're talking about how to navigate the new normal and how to stay connected. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Deborah Greenidge. She has been a music pastor for twenty eight years. In addition to music ministry, she's taught music, she's directed high school and collegiate choirs, recorded and produced CDs, she's led worship, taught in weekend retreats and seminars. She does it all, and I've invited her as a friend to talk about how she is navigating the new normal staying connected to others and staying connected to the Lord during this uh, season of uncertainty and uh, certainly a lot of fear that is uh, circulating around the, the, uh, the neighbors, neighborhoods uh, these days. So, Deborah, right before we took the break, you were holding a thought for us.
3: It's, uh, my thought was it's really quite—I'm um, really blessed and touched by the number of people just in our little fellowship who are willing to make the sacrifice to try to help Others, whether it's the people um, serving in our food bank and the food ministry, um, to the technicians that usually run sound or, or PowerPoint each week, they are they're willing to make a sacrifice that um, that I think is powerful in the kingdom. You know, um, one of the gentlemen that helped me this week, he has significant health issues, and yet he was willing to come to my house, bring the equipment we needed, come a couple hours early, set up certain lights so we could get rid of glare, and just things like that, that to me speak to um, how much the church is trying, the church of Jesus Christ, not just our church, every church is just trying to uh, figure out how we can stay encouraged and connected, and there are people behind the scenes. Making sacrifices every day um, for us to get there it, it's I was saying to someone the other day, who would have sunk uh, six months or a year ago that uh, the heroes of our culture today would be people working in the grocery store you mm, know
2: yeah yeah,
3: now they they are our heroes, and it 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 strikes me as very profound that each one of us, whatever our thing is, our gift is. We, there's a moment. There are moments in our lives when we can make a sacrifice that makes a difference to someone else, no matter what it is we do or who it is that we are.
2: Are you finding that uh, you're na- you have ways to connect to your physical neighbors? I know on your street, you're all side by side. You don't have neighbors across the street. You have this beautiful green space. Um, do you see or hear from your neighbors at all?
3: Sometimes when we take a walk down in the park across from
2: us, we see our neighbors and
3: and talk from a distance. Um, Our neighborhood has a monthly bunco gathering that we've disbanded, but um, we we have a neighborhood email um, list, and we keep in touch with what each other's doing on that as
2: well. I found that when I've been outside and I've seen even a stranger, someone in the neighborhood that's not in my immediate, uh, immediate neighborhood, but it's a a familiar face. It's just so thrilling to see people, you know, out on the street and to be in closer proximity to them. I go through the grocery store and I'm just grinning. I made the decision that when the shelves are empty of certain items that I was looking for, I just express my gratitude for what's there. The fact that I, I'm able to purchase food, that I can bring it to a home where we're comfortable and safe. And um, But just seeing people, I think, is, has had an added element of excitement for me because we're we're not used to being in close proximity anymore, at least for the short. Oh well, yeah, I'm People enjoying are nicer just, to each other. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. What can we do to retain that? I wonder.
3: <laughs> I know. I, I have a question for everyone. When you're when we're going through this season, what are you going to take away? What are you going to do different when this is all over? That being isolated has forced you to think about and to change. Well, what what things are you going to keep up? What things are you going to continue to implement in your life that have been so um, life-giving to you during this season?
2: That's an excellent question, uh, because we tend to get through one season and move on to the next without much reflection. So while we're still in the middle of it, to consider what a value have I gleaned during this time that I will carry with me into the normal that's more familiar. Uh, I I saw a Facebook post the other day that said, you know, I've always said that when I finally have time. I'm really going to give my house a thorough cleaning. And <laughs> the next line down below is I've discovered I really don't want to, <laughs> I really don't want to clean my house. <laughs> the things that we do report to us, this yeah. might be a clarifying season, <laughs> what yes. we want to do or think we want to do or should do, uh, as opposed to what we actually do. So that's, a, that's great advice to consider, reflecting on what is it of value that I need to carry with me into the end of this season and into the next.
3: My, my family, I, there were eight children in our family, and we grew up playing table games all the time because we didn't have money to do other stuff. And to this day, when our family gets together, someone's probably going to break out a deck of cards or something, and we're going to play a game. Uh, lots of families don't have that history, uh, but now that we're all stuck at home, uh, sales of board games have soared. Um, is that, a family dynamic that you would keep um, things like that. I'm hoping people will continue to spend time around a table as a family and laugh and play together. You know, how rare is
2: that? Yeah. And realize it might be something you have to fight for because there are so many things vying for our attention around the dinner tables. Everyone planted on their phone or, you know, during times when there's so many options to, capture and hold our attention we have to be intentional about you know what we've enjoyed this space time as a family how are we going to maintain that um, right once we all go our separate ways again yeah. yeah that's that's so good
3: in fact i would encourage families to sit down when we get close to understanding that we're probably going to be able to socialize again to say hey family um let's let's do two or three takeaways what are the things we're all willing to invest in to make a priority in our life that we've enjoyed during this isolation, you know, Uh, make it a group decision. Yeah.
2: Is there a particular um, song that has resonated in your heart during this season? I noted that uh, a group of nurses is going to be praying on the top of the hospital here in the Portland metro area this evening at, at 530, and they've asked the radio stations to play Waymaker during that time to supplement their their prayer offering from the the roof of our hospital. Is there a song that's resonating with you?
3: Well, the song that I uh, posted on Facebook was a March for Jesus song called Make Us One, Mm -hmm. as you and the Father are one. But the one that stays in my spirit is still. I will be still and know that you are God. Um, I've kind of been singing that in my spirit a lot lately.
2: We have that opportunity to be a bit more still. Well, Deborah, I so appreciate your wisdom and insight, and you're taking the time uh, to talk with us here today, and perhaps encourage us to think a little bit differently about our new normal and how we're going to navigate this uh, this time. Stay close to others and stay connected to Christ. Thank you so much, Deborah.
3: Thank you, Georgine.
2: Have a good day. You too. Well, we've got a couple additional minutes before we go to break. I just want to encourage you to take to heart so much of what Deborah suggested about gleaning from this season that we're in, everything that we can. What is Christ saying to you in your spirit? What is he saying to your heart? What things would you do differently moving forward? What things have you added to your uh, to your day that you don't have the luxury or haven't had up until this point? I'm convinced, as I did my Bible study earlier this morning, that God does not waste a single event in life, but he is always at work. And one of the Um, lines, I'm not sure it's a chorus or a bridge of the song Waymaker that I appreciate is even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. God is at work. He's doing profound, deep, significant things in the hearts of his people. He's drawing those who don't know him to himself. And people are flocking to the internet. They're watching services of uh, people they don't know. They're engaged in pursuing answers. And so we want to make sure that we are prayerful and ready for all that God has for us uh, in our own hearts and certainly to reach out to others as well. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back, so stay with us.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the USNS, comfort, has arrived at the front lines of the coronavirus fight in the United States. The Navy hospital ship, which contains about a thousand beds, a dozen operating rooms, a medical laboratory, a pharmacy and more, sailed into New York Harbor today after departing from Virginia over the weekend. Now, there was a lot of skepticism as to whether or not this was ever going to actually happen or how long it was going to take. But they're about a week earlier than expected. The Navy hospital ship USNS Comfort arrived in New York City to help provide relief for coronavirus outbreak victims. Um, That is impacting the area's hospitals. I should clarify Um, that the concern is not just for those who have COVID-19, but those who are being displaced by COVID-19 patients in hospitals who also need treatment. Uh, People still have strokes, people still have heart attacks, and that does not uh, stop while COVID-19 is being dealt with. Uh, New York Mayor Andrew Cuomo said, as the ship docked at Manhattan's Pier 90, there she is, If there is ever a time we need to work together, it is today, he added, the president is right. This is a war. And what does this nation do when it's in war or at war? It comes together and it acts as one. Well, The White House said the 1,200 doctors, nurses, some anesthesiologists, X-ray technicians, orderlies and other medical staff on board the vessel will augment and support the New York City medical community and conserve hospital capacity for treating some non-COVID-19 patients. We are going to be able to do the life-saving work right now, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said, noting that 750 beds will be put into play immediately to relieve the pressure on our hospital system. It's not the first time that the USNS comfort has been in New York City. The Navy said it was uh, uh, deployed there a day after September 11, 2001, the terrorist attacks, and spent three weeks aiding first responders at Ground Zero. This is this great ship behind me is a 70,000 ton message of hope and solidarity to the incredible people of New York, a place I know very well, a place I love. The president said uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, on Saturday prior to the ship's departure, he says, we're here for you. We're fighting for you and we're with you all the way and we always will be. Well, pharmaceutical companies throughout the world are working around the clock to develop effective coronavirus treatments or vaccines that... um, with no clear breakthroughs. President Trump has spoken out about the importance of trying new treatments in hopes that we can learn where there's room for optimism and where there is not. He's touted drugs used in malaria cases as a possible response to the coronavirus, and now the Food and Drug Administration has put in place an emergency use authorization to try these drugs despite clear evidence of their effectiveness. Politico reported late Sunday that the drugs include hydroxychloroquine uh, and uh, Yes, I think that's right. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Chloroquine is a drug normally used to prevent or treat malaria caused by mosquitoes um, in countries where the disease is most common. As of the corona, uh, for the coronavirus, chloroquine and a similar drug, hydroxychloroquine, have shown encouraging signs in small early tests against the virus, but they have yet to be studied during a controlled clinical study. Well, I'm going to have to take a moment and plug one of my devices in or we're going to just find ourselves dead in the water. There we go. Well, the coronavirus job losses could total 47 million unemployment rates may hit 32 percent. That's what the Fed is estimating. The key points, the coronavirus economic freeze could cost 47 million jobs and send the unemployment rate to that 32 percent point. That's from the Fed projections in St. Louis. There are nearly 67 million Americans working in jobs that are at a high risk of layoffs, according to the analysis. And the St. Louis Fed president, James Ballard, said last week that the initial estimates are grim, but the plunge should be short-lived. And that's what we need to hang on to. The plunge should be short-lived. Millions of Americans already have lost their jobs due to the coronavirus crisis. And the worst of the damage is yet to come, according to the Federal Reserve. Economists at the Fed St. Louis district project uh, total employment reductions. And the projections are even worse than St. Louis Fed President James Billard's much uh, publicized estimates of 30 percent. So we can certainly pray about um, that recovery and those who are losing their jobs in record numbers, at least in our in our day. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin uh, said in a Sunday morning interview that qualifying Americans can expect to see their $1,200 checks deposited into their accounts within three weeks. Uh, Mnuchin played a lead role in the $2 trillion bill's uh, passage, uh, speaking on CBS's Face the Nation, uh, that there will be an online system created so Americans who are not signed up can do so and skip waiting for a physical check. We expect that within three weeks that people who have direct deposit information with us will see those direct deposits in their bank accounts, he says. And we will create a web-based system for people where we don't have their direct deposit that can be uploaded so that they can get their money immediately as opposed to checks in the mail. Individuals are eligible for payments of up to $1,200, but that decreases for those who earn an adjusted gross income of more than $75,000 a year. The bill says that the payment is reduced by 5% of every dollar above that mark and $50 for every $1,000 above the $75,000. He also um, talked about the relief instructions for small businesses, and that's uh, set to be released on Monday. The Treasury Secretary said that small business owners could receive instructions on how to file for federal aid, set as soon as today as the coronavirus pandemic batters bars, restaurants, retailers across the country. These loans will be available starting Friday, the secretary said, Um, this time speaking on Fox Business with Stuart Barney. We hope later today we'll be releasing the documents and instructions. Beginning Friday, Mnuchin said owners can go to any existing small business administration lender as well as the FDIC insured institution, any of them, credit union or financial technology lender that was signed up for the program for relief. Further instructions for how to apply for the aid are expected to be posted on the uh, Small Business Association's website. We expect this to be very, very easy. A key piece of the $2.2 trillion relief bill passed by Congress last week is $350 billion in funding for small businesses. Businesses with fewer than 500 employees are eligible for up to $10 million in loan, uh, which can be used for payroll or other expenses like insurance, premiums, mortgages, rent, or utilities. A senior Treasury official said the small business loan program is retroactive through February 15th, meaning small businesses can go back and rehire any workers laid off after the 15th of February. And again, that should be up and available, we're being told by Secretary Mnuchin, by Friday. Meanwhile, the Dow rallied after the best week since 1938. U.S. equity markets gained Monday morning as traders digested the news that social distancing guidelines were extended until the 30th of April. The Dow Jones Industrial Average climbed by as many as 533 points or 2.5 percent. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ composite were up as much as 1.8 and 2.9 percent respectively. Last week, the Dow gained 13 percent, making it uh, uh, making for its best week since 1938. And the Transportation Security Administration said Sunday that a total of 61 screening officers have tested positive for COVID-19 and posted a list of airports and shifts that they, work, uh, that they worked prior to their diagnosis. So this is a heads up for travelers. 61 screeners tested positive for coronavirus. The agency said that uh, passengers who believe they may have been in contact with the employee um, are encouraged to reach out to their health care provider. CDC recommends that post-exposure health management measures for asymptomatic exposed individuals continue until 14 days after the last potential exposure. The statement read, travel in the U.S. has taken a dramatic dip since the beginning of the outbreak, and according to the TSA's latest checkpoint travel numbers, 203,858 people were screened at checkpoints across the country on the 26th of March, one year ago, in contrast to 2,487 people who were screened. On that same weekday, the U.S. Senate last week passed that massive $2 trillion package that's aimed at preventing an economic freefall during the coronavirus outbreak. Domestic and international flights in the U.S. are estimated to have dropped by around 68 percent in April due to the coronavirus related travel restrictions. Reuters is reporting. And besides the 61 screening officers who worked at airports in New York to Seattle, the agency said 22 non-screening employees with relatively limited interaction with the public um, have also tested positive uh, for the virus. Uh, TSA officers remain dedicated to their mission to ensure that travelers can get to their destination as safely and securely as possible. But that is more of a challenge today than it was before COVID-19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to feature our Union Gospel Mission Radiothon. And I'm, I'm happy that we have the opportunity to let you know what's happening with the Union Gospel Mission. And I'll just give you one quick heads up. They are working at full capacity, full capacity, and they are uh, providing for people who normally would not be uh, seeking their services. That's just a little glimpse of the challenge they are facing. And we have an opportunity with the Union Gospel Mission uh, to take care of our neighbors. It's essentially neighbors taking care of neighbors. So uh, we're going to feature the Union Gospel Mission Radiothon tomorrow and give you an opportunity to say, yes, I recognize that some of the people in my community need my help. And uh, we'll give you some details on that tomorrow. So you can't imagine the challenges that they face in providing the resources that they have faithfully provided in our community for decades. Um, And I noted a headline just earlier in the day, Multnomah County set to open third social distancing homeless shelter. Now, you can read between the lines and recognize how challenging that must be to continue to provide service With this uh, necessary social distancing, which means you can have fewer people, it's just a a challenge. Union Gospel Mission is feeding uh, to capacity and beyond, and that's coming up tomorrow on the program. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Jonathan Dotson, author of Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. And we're working on uh, an interview for Thursday. And along the way, I'm hoping to have uh, conversations with uh, regular folks and those who are in leadership about how they're navigating the new normal I'm also hoping to talk with the um, editor of Christian News Northwest. We'll bring you the latest. What's happening with this uh, uh, fixture in the Christian community? Uh, We're hoping to talk with, uh, with them as well sometime during this week. Well, the International Olympic Committee has announced the new dates for the Tokyo Olympic Games and Paralympics after the 2020 Games were postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, the IOC said today that the Tokyo Olympics will begin July 24th 2021 and in August 2021. And the Paralympics will begin August 24th, 2021 and in September 5th of the same year, uh, says the um, IOC President Thomas Bach in a statement. I want to thank the International Federation for their unanimous support and the Continental Association of National Olympic Committees for the great partnership and their support in this consultation process over the last few days. So for those who have been training for years for the Olympic Games, at least they have a clear date in the future that they will very likely have the opportunity to compete. Again, the Olympic Games, July the 24th through August the 8th, 2021, the Paralympics, August 24th through September 5th of 2021 as well. While a field hospital is being erected in New York City's famed Central Park to help meet the demand of extra hospital beds during the coronavirus outbreak, that's ripped through the city. Mount Sinai Hospital said in a statement that uh, it is partnering with Samaritan's Purse and other government agencies and will be located in the east meadow of the park. It will enable doctors to provide care for patients seriously ill with COVID, opening up um, other resources for patients with other needs. The hospital is expected to be up and running by Tuesday, the report said. The makeshift hospital will have 68 beds. The report said that Samaritan's Purse, and that, of course, is the nonprofit um, that uh, is run by Billy Graham's son. Uh, It's a non-denominational evangelical Christian organization. It's been operated uh, in um, uh, Cremona, Italy, and other places. The organization led by Franklin Graham, the son of the late televangelist, according to the New York Post, is uh, heading up that effort. The team of 70 doctors will be led by Dr. Elliot uh, Tenpenny, who worked in disaster areas like Syria and West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. He says this is honestly the most improbable place we've ever been. He told The Post, I never would have guessed that we'd come to New York City with something like this, but New York never thought it would be dealing with a pandemic either. When well, New York City remains the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S., there have been 776 deaths there in the city as of late Sunday. The virus has been challenging the public health officials because it is spread easily, even from those with no apparent symptoms. And we learned today that former Senator Tom Coburn, a fiscal conservative and a fierce opponent of wasteful spending in the federal government, has died after a years-long fight with prostate cancer. Coburn, who retired from the Senate in 2015 amid complications with cancer, died late Friday. His death was first reported by the Oklahoman. He was 72. Because of his strong faith, he rested in the hope found in John chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Today he lives in heaven, his family said in a statement to the outlet. He served in the House from 1995 to 2001 and in the Senate from 2005 to 2015. Coburn brought his experience as a doctor to the Hill. He was known for his fiscal conservatism, his strong stance against government waste as trillion dollar deficits became a regular occurrence in Washington. He picked up the nickname Dr. No and released the Waste Book every year that outlines some of the more egregious examples of government waste. We're running trillion-dollar deficits the way uh, you get rid of trillion-dollar deficits, a billion at a time, he said back in 2012. Vice President Mike Pence hailed Coburn as a great conservative voice in the United States Congress and American physician whose legacy will live on. Most importantly, he was a follower of Christ. Senator James Lankford, who succeeded Coburn in the Senate in 2005, paid tribute calling Colburn a tremendous leader and a great friend. He was unwavering in his conservative values, but he had deep and meaningful friendships with people from all political and personal backgrounds. He was truly respected by people on both sides of the aisle. That's how it was done, by the way, in the old days. He went on to say Dr. Colburn will be remembered by many around the world for his work in Congress, but in Oklahoma he will be remembered as a physician, a Sunday school teacher, and a mentor. Uh, he delivered to over 4,000 babies, cared for thousands of moms in Mus- uh, Muskogee. He His greatest joy was his wife, Carolyn, and his daughter, Callie, Katie, and Sarah, and their families. Cindy and I pray for the Coburn family as they walk through this incredibly hard journey. They have uh, lost a husband, father, and grandfather. We have lost a friend and a leader. And it goes on from there. Again, uh, former Senator Tom Coburn has died of cancer at age 72. Well, one thing is certain, while the COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus, we've not seen anything quite like this before, there are some things that never change. Men are born and they die, and God has appointed for each of us when that will happen. What we do in the interim uh, is up to us, and my hope and prayer is that we are being as constructive as possible during this season of uneasiness, of uncertainty, but that we could exhibit the peace of Christ and extend the love of Christ to others. Want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us once again tomorrow for the Union Gospel Mission Radio Fund. We've got important news for you uh, to be shared and an important opportunity for you to help out as they are uh, functioning at peak capacity during this um, this pandemic. Thanks for listening. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.